Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 78. David McCone helps build opportunities. Here's a shout out to listeners in China, Congo, Jordan, and in the United States, Lexington, Kentucky, Diamond Head, Mississippi, and in Nevada, Las Vegas, and Reno. With that, let's get started. Originally from Northern Ireland, David now lives in Southern California where he is the CEO of Outfield Leadership. Through his coaching and his writing, David helps teams and individuals develop and grow and achieve the extraordinary. David has a wealth of experience and a global perspective, and having a business degree from the University of Hong Kong and a Master's of Art from the University of Glasgow gives him a unique perspective. Part 1. Opening Doors If you listen to a lot of the Unlabeled Leadership episodes, you're going to pick up on some themes. One of those themes is this concept of opening doors as a metaphor. And this started with episode 4, Judy Hale and the Brown Suit. David picks up on this theme and gives a slightly different perspective on it that is well worth hearing. Here's David to explain. I believe in my senior year of high school, and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, which is no small decision for a 17-year-old. Yeah, your first decision to <laughs> for the 20th time in your life, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was toying up a bunch of options. I've been blessed to, to grow up in a, in a family with, with parents who essentially their, their motto was, look, as long as you're happy, then that's okay. I, I mean, I don't think they were ever going to let me do anything that would cause me to, to take a, a completely wayward turn. But there was a sense of, I, I had freedom of self-exploration of areas that I wanted to, to pursue. And so I was thinking through, did I want to go to college? Did I want to take a year off and do some voluntary? work? Did I want to get a job? You know, I would filter through a whole bunch of perspectives and thoughts that I had on it. And I was talking to my, my stepmother at the time about it. She said to me, look, one of the things that somebody once said to her was when you're making big life choice choices like this, so long as you leave more doors open than you close, you'll probably make a good decision. You know, she was like, there is no one right decision in, in any of this. Evaluate, look at those options and ask yourself which which of these routes ultimately allows me to keep more doors open than than closed. It's something that has stuck with me ever since then, it helped me make the decision at the time of what I was going to do, it helped guide a couple of big decisions early on in my career, helped guide my decision to ultimately trade in the rain and gray weather of the United Kingdom for, for the United States. States, and it's just been such an overarching philosophy for me for so long to leave more doors open than you close. It is an interesting concept, and it has appeared on this show multiple times, starting with Judy Hale way back at the beginning of this series. When something happens in your life, whether you've committed to starting with a company or if you're laid off from a company. Mm -hmm. How your mindset is determines how many opportunities that you can actually see in front of you. 
Yeah, I think so. I think it's huge. And and actually, I think you, you couple that with, with another bit of wisdom that I heard maybe two, three years ago, which was control what you can control and don't worry about the rest. I think often in our in our life, we get a little bit overwhelmed with the number of options or choices that we have in front of us. And, and sometimes we we worry that we're not going to pick the right, the best thing. And actually, if you combine those two things and you, you can focus on what are the things in front of me that I truly can control and not worry so much about the outcome, just worry about how you can show up with the right mindset, with the right behaviors, with the right desire to, to grow and develop couple that with, okay, I'm going down a route where I'm going to try to keep more doors open for me, then it's it's almost like every every little level, every little plateau that you get to, you get to lift your head up and go, wow, there's there's a vast world in front of me again. And now I get to choose again from everything that's here. Whereas if you go down a route where you're narrowing your choices, it's it's a lot harder to to find a path or a way through that or out of that if if you need to. It's nice to have the realize you have opportunities, you have choices. As you go through life, having that perspective can be so helpful. And and in a sense, I'm, I'm not too sure of the word for it, but uh, don't think it's comfort, but it's something like that. Yeah. The more intentional that we are with our choices and in particular, what we say no to. So for everything that we say yes to, we, we have to say no to a whole bunch of stuff. You know, particularly in the concept of long-term happiness and well-being. Being able to come to a decision and say, if I'm going to go down this road, that means saying no to, you know, I'm going to take route door A, that means saying no to door B and C, and then weighing that up and then saying, okay, I'm fine. Like what I'm set to gain or what could get as a result of walking through door A, I'm happy to leave to the side the other routes to go pursue that. Folks that that make choices in that way, I think ultimately have a of a higher degree of satisfaction. Whereas on the flip side, there is a tendency, human nature does have a tendency for us to say, well, I'm gonna go down this route, but I'm always gonna hold on to the possibility that I could have done that. You know, I could have opened door B or door C. We kind of have these one foot in two camps that ultimately doesn't allow us to really fully engage with the choices that we make. And and it there's also this sense of like woulda, coulda, shoulda, or maybe evaluate your options, make your choice, and then commit to that. Knowing that you can change your choice at another time and go in a different direction, but try not to live in a world where you're half in and half out. Yeah. Otherwise you're full of regret. Do the best you can. If it doesn't work out, learn from it, move on, look for where to go from there. Yeah, for sure. And the, and the, I think the worst thing that we can do is is to find ourselves in a place where we blame the external circumstances around us of which we have no control. And there are certain external circumstances that we do have control over. And the more that we adopt that approach and say, okay, I'm going to try to widen the areas that I can control rather than just saying, well, my upbringing had been slightly different or my parents' perspective would have been slightly different or if I had gone to this school or if I'd studied that or if I'd been in, born in this decade or if I'd gone and moved to this city. And it's kind of like, well, what's the deck of cards that you've got in front of you right now? And, and those are the cards that you can play. 
the worst using your word is that when you give into your external circumstances, but there is still a lot you can control, even when things don't work out the way they are, how you choose to react to bad experiences, even there's a lot of choice that we can make. And I think when we recognize how much control we do have with how we respond to situations and through life, it really makes a difference in the quality of our life. Oh, very much so. And and I think in a lot of instances, like you said, we have more control than, than we think that we do. And when I'm talking with somebody that's got a particular issue or a challenge that they're faced with, whenever they realize the levers that they have at their disposal, it really leaves them with, with only a couple of options. Either number one, if you don't, if you don't like the situation, you can change it, improve it, make it better. You can stay in that situation and decide that you don't want to make the changes because the sacrifices that you have to make in those changes outweigh the benefit that you're going to get. And so you're like, well, I'm not going to change the situation. I'm just going to stay in it. Or there's, you know, choice number three, which is I'm going to stay in this situation, but I'm not going, I'm intentionally not going to make one of those two choices. And I'm going to allow myself to get frustrated by the, by the circumstances. And that's the worst place to end up because you're stuck in a situation you don't like, and you have not said, you've not made the commitment that says, you know what, I've, I've evaluated all of the options in front of me. And I've decided that actually making a change is harder than I'm, I'm prepared to do here. And so I, I try to encourage folks on option number one or option number two. Like, do you want to change your circumstances or your situation? Is it ultimately not worth the hassle? In which case, you know what? Make that intentional choice and be okay with it and be comfortable and you'll find happiness there. Um, I find a lot of people get stuck in, you know, whether it's careers that they're not the most pleased with or organizations that they don't like or even relationships that, you know, they're, they're not too keen on. And, and the only response is, well, do you want to change that or, or do you truly want to stay in that situation? In which case, make that choice and, and be happy about it, own it. Part two. Changing Habits in Real Time In Episode 8, Ronald Graves talks about what coaching is and what it isn't. One of the things that Ronald talks about is how the coach pulls answers from the person that is being coached. And I should know because he's my executive coach. In this example, David is going to share a coaching situation in which he exemplifies what Ronald was talking about in an incredible way. Here's David to explain. So I, I um, do a lot of executive coaching uh, with uh, CEOs and presidents uh, of growing organizations. And I'm, I'm sitting in the office of the president of a, of a software company up in Northern California. And we're not too deep into the topics that we were due to talk about, but the general theme that I had been working with this person on was really about relinquishing control of the of the challenges that our team faces, helping empower them to solve them rather than jumping in to save the day. And so we're sitting there and her phone rings and she kind of looks at me and says, Dave, I'm really sorry. I need to take this. And I say, okay, no problem. She goes, picks it up and still with an earshot, you get the sense of the, of the conversation. There's clearly somebody on her team has an issue, has a problem with challenge. It's quite heated, and, and she says, "Look, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll I'll fix it. Don't worry about it. I got it. I got it." She hangs up the phone, and I'm thinking I haven't heard the entire conversation, but I'm I'm just thinking I don't think that that's the best <laughs> approach to all of this. You know, we're trying to we're trying to work on her empowering her team to solve more problems for herself, and so she says, "Okay, thanks very much." And says goodbye. 
And I'm, I'm just sitting there, no particular expression on my face, waiting to, you know, resume our conversation, maybe dig a little deeper into what was going on there. She turns around, she just looks at me and then she says, I'll call him back <laughs> and turns around, calls the guy back and says, let's just replay that conversation again. Share with me what the, what the issue or the challenge is. And then I can hear her say, okay, that sounds good. What are your thoughts on the best way to solve this? listens for two, three minutes. And she goes, that sounds great. Choice number two is absolutely sounds, sounds fantastic. What do you need from me? Okay. That's great. Yeah. Just let me know how it goes. And she hangs up and <laughs> comes down and sits down. And it was in that moment, she had that realization that what she was going to do initially was pick up the phone and call whoever it was that this person had an issue with and, and sort it out for them. But she had explicitly expressed one of her own developmental goals was to give her team some some room to really solve the challenges for themselves and, and to move more towards a, a supportive role to them. She had been pulled back to that old habitual heroic leadership process that she had been so prone to previously. You know, it almost just went into into override and and then she hung up the phone, she took a breath, she turned around, was reminded of the person who's trying to help her work through these and then just said, okay, that's not good leadership. Let me take take two of that conversation again and approached it in a way that was, uh, I think, a much better outcome for her and her, her teammate. Talk about teachable moments. Here's a situation where you have the conversation, she hangs up, she looks at you. There's a lot that you could say, but she picks up the phone and it sounded like it's like you coached her without saying anything. <laughs> I, I, th- I, I, w- I would love if it was uh, if it was quite like that. I think I was more just a physical man- manifestation reminder of the things that she had already decided that she had committed to working on. But but there was definitely, you know, if I hadn't been there, who knows, maybe it would have been an, another conversation that we had a, at another time. But, but what I thought was really good about it was she could have easily just said, ah, I didn't get that one right. I, you know what? I'll get the next one right. But she didn't. She realized that, look, if she's trying to make these shifts and the changes, and particularly if she's trying to grow this person underneath her, you know, just calling the back and saying, hey, that, that was too fast. I moved too quickly. We didn't take the approach that I, that I wanted to. Let's let's just hit rewind on that. That takes a degree of humility and vulnerability to be able to do that because it, it admits that, you know, an element of fallibility in your own leadership. Definitely. I want to ask you something about your coaching experiences and and working with people that are trying to set specific goals like this, like empowering others and relinquishing control. Do you find that telling the people that you're working with what your goal is and letting them know in advance, you're trying to, to change this behavior, how effective is that with working with executives? I mean, I always encourage anybody that I'm working with to share with their direct reports broad themes of what they're trying to work on. doesn't have to be the specifics, doesn't have to be the nitty gritty, but certainly key behavior shifts that they're working through for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's nothing stranger than having your leader turn up and start acting in a completely different way. <laughs> You're like, who, who are you and what have you done with my boss? It's just, you know, and people then start, particularly if they don't know that they're working on something, they start to get suspicious. They fill in the blank with stuff that's in their head. And so just being transparent and saying, hey, this is, you know, I've identified these three key aspects of my own particular leadership, my mindset or my behaviors or my skill set that I'm working on. And then actually asking for two things. One is just help to hold me accountable because the reality is for many of us, those uh, negative leadership traits that we have are often habitual and they're often very reactive. And that's a very difficult thing to on your own overcome. And they often come out when we're feeling stressed or pressured in a 
group environment, you know, whether it is trying to, you know, not save the day by telling your team exactly what to do, whether it is delegating more effectively, whether it is having tough, difficult conversations, whether it is trying to build some more consensus amongst the team, we have that natural tendency that we're trying to overcome. And so sharing with the folks that you work with to help hold you accountable to some of the things you're working on can be really, really helpful. The other thing then is often, particularly with executives, the shifts and changes that they're making in their behavior, part of the reason that they want to do that is because they need to see a shift or change in the behavior of the people that work with them. Because it's it's this tussle, it's this two-sided coin, particularly that element of of empowerment and accountability and and the leader just leading through acts of heroism you know on one hand you can stop you can stop showing up and saving the day on the other hand you've got to then show your team truly what it means to take ownership and accountability over the things that are in front of them and so there's there's this ebb and flow of of the leader's behavior and the team's behavior just being open, honest, transparent about that will get you results faster. So I'm a, I'm a huge believer in just getting it out there and saying, these are the things that I'm working on. Please help me. And by the way, I think as a result of it, it'll help you and your role grow and develop as well. I was in a corporation. I made the mistake of trying to change one of my behavior. So I was just expressing appreciation for what other people do. And by the end of the day, I had some of them come up and said, when are you quitting? It's like, what? (laughs) Well, I mean, the way you're talking, it's like you're saying goodbye to us. You know, it was was just an abrupt change in in behavior. I didn't realize how much of a change, but yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about letting people know what you're on in broad terms. To your second point is giving the people you work with an expectation that if I'm going to, in your example, empower you, uh, the people that work with me, then you guys, you need to step up. But I like in your example with this president, how she asked, how would you address this problem? And then said, how can I support you when you, with that choice that you've made? Yeah. The two-sided nature of our relationships, not just in work, but everywhere that we go is is hugely important. And the more senior in an organization a person goes, the greater the correlation between the frustration that they have on how their team shows up and their own behavior it starts to, to really, really narrow. You know, with this particular person, she could have easily showed up and said, well, my team doesn't take accountability for anything. They, they don't take ownership over anything, to which case the appropriate answer is, well, you've got to look in the mirror because you're not allowing them to do that. And so you can't just have a desire or tell your team that they've got to step up in a particular way without first looking at the emboldening or empowering behavior that you're having or enabling behavior that, that you've got that allows them to do that or, or causes them to do that thing. There is power in saying, look, I totally understand my role in addressing this. This is what I'm committing to to you and to the team. This is what I'd like you to commit to. And then you move into a place of trying to hold each other accountable and working through all of the trials and tribulations of making long-term behavior change stick. It just goes to show why we need coaches like you, <laughs> just for that reason to help go through that experience and, and process. Yeah, well, I think that the thing that a good coach can do in any setting is is really just to hold up a mirror to behavior that's already there. Just hold people's feet to the fire about recognizing the benefits and the and the negative attributes of their behavior, committing to whatever change or shift that they want to make, and and then just providing a framework for for behavior change and for accountability. Part three, silence. People often underestimate the complexity of communication and listening. 
And here's something that might give you some light. Jason Jennings, the late Jason Jennings, once wrote about why you lose focus when listening. In one of his books, The Reinventors, I believe it is, the average speaker talks at a rate of 135 words a minute, but the average listener comprehends at a rate of 400% faster. When you're listening, your mind unavoidably races ahead of the speaker. You can't help but think of other thoughts and sandwich in random observations as the speaker is telling you what that person is thinking and concerned about. Another part of communication is something that David talks about. Well, I'll let David explain. Here he is. One of the most effective and underutilized tools in leadership is the art of the pause and just taking a beat and a moment. In a whole range of, of circumstances, you know, we have a, have a tendency to have to keep moving forward at breakneck speed because the world in which we exist, our organization and then the world at large just moves so quickly that we feel like we have a need to react instantaneously to everything that comes in. That can be somebody picks up the phone and has an issue, like the challenge we were talking about earlier. It could be that you've got a, a good idea that you want to share. It could be that the team that, you know, your team teams having a, a discussion and you're sort of seeing it go in a direction that you don't want to. And we have this tendency to want to jump in to course correct in all of those instances. And, and I think that there's real value in, in actually pausing and taking a beat and just asking yourself, okay, in this circumstance, what I want, what do I want to get out of this? Setting my intentions, what does success look like? And, and actually being more intentional about the choices that you make, giving folks the room to fill that pause as well. Because often we feel like we like silence is a negative thing. We have a tendency to want to fill silence. When you do that as the manager or the leader, you suck out any of the oxygen in the room for any additional discussion, debate, questioning, creativity, innovation, and ultimately everybody just defers to whatever it is that you said. And so taking a pause in any situation you find yourself in leaving a period of silence and sometimes just letting that silence do the heavy lifting with the folks that are with you, letting them fill that silence rather than you feeling the need to do it yourself. Sometimes it just takes people a few seconds to figure out how they want to respond or react or suggest a change because of that uncomfortable feeling of silences. Just like you're saying, I get it. You eliminate the other person's opportunity to think and react and be able to give their take. Yeah. Give a real simple example. We're so bad at giving constructive feedback just on mass in general. I mean, if, if there's if there's one thing that I see again and again and again from, from leaders is just, we just struggle with it because it's awkward and nobody likes telling somebody that they screwed up or aren't you know performing at the level that they should be. And so we have this terrible tendency of saying the thing it is that we want to say and then just saying, but you know, it's not that big of a deal. Or if you could just fix these two things or, you know, don't worry about it so much, it would just be great if you could. And all you're doing there is just deflating the, the weight of the point that you're trying to make. And also you're taking away the opportunity for the person to truly respond to the feedback that you're giving them and just walking through a process of saying, okay, here's Here's the example of the behavior that that I've noticed. Here's the impact or the effect that it has on you, me, the team, or clients, whoever it is that it impacts. And, and here's a potential change that you could make to better it. And then just being quiet, letting them respond to that rather than feeling that need, like you said, that awkwardness to rush in and, and fill that void and, and the vacuum. 
it's about the behavior. Mm -hmm. It's about how that behavior affects other people or the situation. And then giving that person an opportunity just to think through that and respond. Yeah, I agree. Or no, nah, you got it all wrong. Or just give that person a chance to say something and either confirm, validate, or correct. It makes such a difference. Absolutely. And and if you don't give them that opportunity, then whatever feedback it is that you're trying to give them isn't going to stick because they don't have the opportunity to share their perspective or, or, or their piece. And at the end of the day, you're sharing your perspective of, of a behavior that's happening and, and giving somebody the opportunity to, like you said, either say, yep, I can see that. In a number of cases, folks will say, I didn't even realize that I was doing that. Thanks for sharing that. Or they'll say, okay, I can see why you said that. Let's figure out a way through it. And I think we fear that everybody's going to you know, go off an emotional deep end, whether it's anger or, or sadness. And that's not necessarily the case. Not everyone has a mental breakdown when you observe some behavior and said, you know, here's the behavior. Oh, no. <laughs> right. People are a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. And there's that sense of comfort again, not being comfortable in a pause, not comfortable in giving constructive feedback. I think so. I think it also goes back to our false belief that as a leader, you need to know everything and you need to have absolute surety and clarity around where we're going. And heaven forbid, if you were to say, I actually don't know, or just let silence do the heavy lifting, that somehow you're being caught with a tied out with no clothes on. Some of the, the greatest leaders that have the most impact do so by not oversharing their perspective or what they know or what they've done or filling that gap, but that actually some of the best leaders merely provide that space for their team to fill that themselves, um, to solve their own problems, to set their own goals, to essentially show up and say to the leader, here's what I need from you to help support me rather than the other way around. My thanks to David McCone. If you'd like to learn more about David, go to the show notes. And if you have a comment or question, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and you can leave a voicemail message up to one minute. I'd like to thank those who contribute to the show. Your contributions makes a difference because this is an all-volunteer podcast. Mostly, though, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time. Lead on.